The scripture of the Exodus of the Hebrews has been read, and the words of the mystery have been declared. How the sheep was sacrificed, and how the people was saved, and how Pharaoh was flogged by the mystery. Therefore, well beloved, understand how it is both new and old, eternal and provisional, perishable and imperishable, mortal and immortal, this mystery of the Pascha. I've been promising for the last two months now to begin a series of conferences on the liturgy, and today I hope to make good on the promise. I'd like to take advantage of the unique opportunity afforded by two meetings uh, in close succession to deliver at least two conferences on the mystery of the Pascha, the Paschal mystery. Perhaps uh, more will follow after that, we'll see. Now, a moment ago, I quoted the earliest known use of this phrase in a work called On Pascha by Melito, the second century bishop of Sardis in Asia Minor, which is located in present-day Turkey. On Pascha is a liturgical homily that Melito delivered on the night of the celebration of Pascha. By the second century, Christians had begun to celebrate an annual festival on a date in the spring that coincided with the Jewish Passover. Unlike the later Christian festival of Easter, the ancient celebration marked not simply the resurrection of Christ from the dead. It was a solemn observance of Christ's passion, death, and resurrection. It was a kind of Good Friday and Easter combined. It was called, as I said, the Pascha, the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew term for Passover, which is Pesach. The Paschal celebration, which included the reading of the account of the first Passover in Exodus 12, began in the evening and ended early the next morning with the offering of the Eucharist. Now, this may remind you of the Paschal vigil in the Roman Rite, when in the uh, contemporary Roman Rite we have seven readings from the Old Testament. Uh, in the Rite prior to the reforms um, of the 20th century, there were 12 Old Testament passages that were read, including Exodus. Uh, it may also remind uh, some oblates who are not present here today, we have, of course, one uh, Orthodox oblate now, of the Vesperal Divine Liturgy of Holy Saturday in the Byzantine Rite when 15 Old Testament prophecies are read. So Exodus 12 is prominent in both of these rites. And I will return to the Paschal Vigil uh, towards the end of my conference. But for now, a bit more about Melito and his homily. He begins his homily just after the passage from Exodus about the slain lambs and the flight from Egypt. That's why he says at the beginning that I read, the scripture of the Exodus of the Hebrews has been read. He proceeds to speak at length about how the angel of death killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, but left the Israelites alone. Now, of course, the angel of death passed over the Israelites and 
we'll explore the significance of this, this term, Passover, this verb uh, in the Hebrew, a bit more in a moment here. Now, what's very interesting about his presentation of this is the angel of death passed over not because of the sheep's blood itself that was placed on the doorposts, but because he already saw in the blood a sign of the mystery of the Lord, says Melito. And he goes on in this homily to expound a range of other images and events by which scripture declares Christ's paschal mystery. He ends his homily by speaking in the person of the risen Christ himself. According to the compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in the liturgy of the Church, it is his own paschal mystery that Christ signifies and makes present. So the paschal mystery is the content not only of the ancient Christian Pascha, but of every sacramental and liturgical celebration. Think about that. Every sacrament, all of the seven sacraments of the church, not only that, but all of the liturgies of the church, not just the Eucharist, but uh, the divine office, um, the whole range of different blessings that are administered uh, liturgically. There's one mystery that underlies and animates all of those sacramental and liturgical celebrations, and that is the Paschal mystery. Now, how many of you can recall having heard this phrase before? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. All right. So a few of you. A few of you. Now, returning to Melito's words, new and old, eternal and temporary, perishable and imperishable, mortal and immortal. Now, this is pretty lofty language, okay? Uh, it may seem somewhat remote from our experience. And judging by the fact that some of us have, have not heard the term or are not familiar with it at least, um, it may be remote from our experience. But I'd like to suggest that it should be central, should be central to our experience and to our understanding. Let me bring in another witness here in addition to Melito. And this is a contemporary monastic witness to the importance of the Paschal mystery. The witness is the current Bishop of Aberdeen, Hugh Gilbert, who is also the former abbot of Pluskerton Abbey in Scotland. Now, some of you will recall hearing uh, about Pluskerton and its uh, current abbot, Abbot Anselm. I'm sure you've heard that name before. Abbot Anselm has visited the monastery many times when he was serving as abbot visitor of our province, the English province. And it's one of the leading monasteries of our congregation. We make use of their lectionary of patristic readings for vigils. And I've shared with some of you the statutes of the oblate community of, of Pluskerton. And I would certainly recommend, for those who are interested, finding those on their website and reading through them. And they're an excellent presentation of the spirit and practice of the oblate life. So in 2011, Abbot Hugh was appointed Bishop of Aberdeen by Pope Benedict. And some years before that appointment, he wrote the following to his monks. The phrase Paschal Mystery may occasionally fall on our ears or meet our eyes. 
in some of the prayers of Lent and Eastertide, in the odd homily, perhaps, in writings on the liturgy, in worthy compendiums of the Church's faith, like the Catechism. We may be aware it has to do with the death and resurrection of Christ, and so with Easter, but it remains, I suspect, a little alien and slightly baffling. This is a shame, for it is a phrase which takes us to the heart of our faith, and as it does so, draws together many things that we tend to separate, and so can help give us the sense of at last understanding, at last finding the center, and therefore finding life. Beautiful words. In what follows, both today and in two weeks, I hope to begin illustrating how it is that the Paschal mystery indeed takes us to the heart of our faith and helps us to find life. I will divide my reflections into three parts. The Paschal mystery revealed in history, the Paschal mystery celebrated in the liturgy, and the Paschal mystery lived out in the life of St. Benedict and in his rule. Now let me put this somewhat differently. The scriptures bear witness to the revelation of the mystery in history. In the liturgy, we experience the mystery now. And in the life of prayer and virtue, we live it out. So today I will begin with the first of these three points, and if there's time, I will introduce the second. What is the meaning of the word mystery in the scriptures? And what, what is it that might give us a clue to that phrase, paschal mystery, the mystery of the Pascha, which Melito was the first to use in his homily in the late second century? To answer these questions, I will enlist uh, some more help. In this case, it is uh, one of the great Catholic theologians of the 20th century, Louis Bouillet. Now, what Melito says about the reality of the Paschal mystery, it is new and old at once, can also be said about the phrase Paschal mystery. And I'll explain how this relates to Bouillet. In its Latin form, Sacramentum Pascale, Sacramentum Pascale, it is found in the ancient Roman liturgical books in different prayers and so on, particularly of, of Easter. But it was the French Protestant minister turned Catholic and priest, Louis Bouillet, who in 1945, building on the pioneering work of a German Benedictine monk, Dom Otto Cassel, made it the title of an epoch-making study of the liturgy of the last days of Holy Week, Le Mystère Pascal, the Paschal Mystery. And thereby, as Bishop Hugh says, he began the process of making the old new once again. Would it be possible to say that the rediscovery of the Paschal Mystery springs from Europe's experience of death and resurrection in and after World War II. So the book was published in 1945. I would suggest that this, this is worth reflecting on, how this rediscovery came about at a particular moment in time, because it's quite relevant for us today. Both the church and the nation are undergoing multiple crises, 
that seem to foretell a kind of cultural or spiritual death in our time. The prophecies of Pope Benedict uh, in his radio addresses from 1969, um, in which uh, he foretold the loss on the part of the church of many of the institutions she had inhabited in her prosperity uh, and a kind of chastening of the church so that the church of the future would be small and, and poor. You're probably also familiar with uh, the prophecy, uh, perhaps a bit more tongue-in-cheek, of uh, the, the late uh, Cardinal George of Blessed Memory, uh, in which he suggested that um, he expected to die in his bed but he thought that his successor would uh, die in prison and his successor, his successor's successor, would die a martyr in the public square. So, if we are facing cultural, spiritual, or perhaps even physical death, how might Christ be inviting us today to discover his paschal mystery anew? To make the old new yet again? So I would suggest this is a particularly relevant question for us and reflection. Now, after uh, Father Bouillet published his study, Vatican II took up the phrase, especially in Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy. And it appears in other uh, places in the, the documents of the Council. Um, I'll just read one of them for you briefly here. The wonderful works of God among the people of the Old Testament were but a prelude to the work of Christ the Lord in redeeming mankind and giving perfect glory to God. He achieved his task principally by the paschal mystery of his blessed passion, resurrection from the dead, and the glorious ascension, whereby dying he destroyed our death and rising he restored our life. So that's just one example. The post-conciliar liturgical books, uh, the Reformed liturgical books, also have made use of it. Popes John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis uh, have made use of it in their writings and homilies. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, as I mentioned, and so have many liturgists, theologians, and Christian thinkers. But Father Bouillet was the first of them, and he remains perhaps the most important. So I will be quoting extensively from his writings. So again, now, what is the meaning of the word mystery in Scripture? And what can give us a clue to the phrase Paschal mystery? Well, first, I will say what mystery is not. Mystery is not some idea which we just have to kind of accept without being able fully to explain or even to understand it. That's not the way in which mystery is being used here. I heard someone describe this, this notion as sort of a, a red light. Okay, mystery means stop. <laughs> you can't go any further. Um, but he suggested, no, it's more like a, a sort of blinking yellow light. You know, you have to pay attention now, but you can perceive. Mystery is not a sacred rite that must be kept out of reach or even from the knowledge of the multitudes and jealously reserved for the enlightened few. Now this is what mystery meant in the ancient Greco-Roman world. For instance, the uh, Eleusinian mysteries, 
there were many mystery cults, as they're often called. Instead, in the scriptures, the mystery is, I'm quoting Father Bouillet here, the great secret of God's design for the salvation of the world. The great secret of God's design for the salvation of the world. Now, this secret could not be understood even by the highest human wisdom. Even once it is revealed, human wisdom cannot grasp it. The wise of this world are bewildered by it because it seems like foolishness to them. Neither men nor angels could achieve that knowledge without a special revelation of God through his Holy Spirit. Now, some of you will recognize these words here, mystery, wisdom, foolishness, from the opening of the letter to the Corinthians, first letter. This is actually the first appearance of musterion in Greek uh, in the, the preaching of the apostolic church. So, first Corinthians uh, would have come uh, relatively early in uh, the, the canon of, of New Testament writings. And this word appears 21 times in Paul's letters. So just a, a few brief examples. Romans 16.25 speaks of the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret for long ages, but is now disclosed and through the prophetic writings is made known to all nations. Ephesians 4.3, Paul speaks of my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And one more example of this, Colossians 4.3, Paul says, pray for us also that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. But as I mentioned, it's really 1 Corinthians that is the most important text here. So, when I came to you, brothers, proclaiming the mystery of God, I did not come with sublimity of words or of wisdom. So, the mystery of God there is Paul's proclamation, but not through wisdom. Not through wisdom. But then he goes on to say, Yet we do speak a wisdom to those who are mature, but not a wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Rather, we speak God's wisdom, mysterious, hidden. And this literally says here, God's wisdom in a mystery which has been hidden away. So, Paul, in this important passage, links this mystery with the wisdom of God and with its communication to us, the revelation of the word. In the Old Testament, especially in Daniel 2, we find the word mystery used in this same connection, both with wisdom and with revelation of the word. Chapter 2 is the story of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And during the time that the Israelites are in exile in Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream during the night that troubles him, and he summons to him the magicians and sorcerers and Chaldeans to tell him his dreams. 
So they come in and they say to him, tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. Now the king is displeased. Uh, He knows that they are stalling for time. And he says, tell me the dream and its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answer, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. None can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So at this, the king is enraged, and he orders the destruction of all the wise men of Babylon. Now, Daniel, at this time, is living in Babylon with the other exiles, and he goes in and beseeches the king to appoint him a time that he may show the king the interpretation of his dream. So Daniel returns to his house and confers with Uh, his companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he tells them to seek the mercy of God concerning this mystery so that they might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then, verse 19 says, Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and mysterious things. He knows what is in the darkness. So here we have mystery, we have wisdom, and we have the revelation of the mystery. So at the appointed time, Daniel comes to the king and he says, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery which the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. But then Daniel goes on to say, As for me, Not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living has this mystery been revealed to me, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. And then he goes on to reveal both the dream and its interpretation. And when he concludes, the king praises God. Verse 47 here, he says, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. According to Daniel, God, who is the only real king of the world, not Nebuchadnezzar, and therefore the only truly wise one, is also the only one who knows the secret of what will happen, since that depends wholly on his will. So, returning to Paul now, with, with this as an aid for understanding, we can say that only God possesses wisdom worthy of the name. He knows the whole pattern of history because it is wholly in his hands. It is dominated by a great design in which everything and every man without reservation must concur. And the final key of that heavenly design is the cross of Christ. So in Christ alone, and chiefly in his passion, as it leads to his resurrection, does the wisdom of God come to its final realization and to its final disclosure, its final revelation. 
But again, as I said earlier, this wisdom remains so far above any created understanding that it can be grasped only by faith in the Spirit, the Spirit that has been given to us by the risen Christ. So we already begin to see here the unitary mystery that is the Paschal mystery, not just his passion and his resurrection through the agency of the cross, but also the gift of the Spirit which allows us to grasp the meaning of the Paschal mystery in faith. So all of these mysteries are one mystery. And Father Bouillet summarizes here, I'll just quote this passage. The mystery is the great revelation of God's wisdom in Christ. It is fully revealed to us in what Christ has said, but still more in what he has done, in what he is, and in what he remains in his heavenly glory. Above all, it is revealed in his cross, in the light that the cross casts on all sacred history which prepares for it, in the light that it casts on our own human history, even while it discloses to us something of the most hidden life of God, the life of love. So that's the meaning of mystery in the scripture. What then is the meaning of paschal mystery? What does this qualification signify? This is not just the mystery, this is the paschal mystery. Well, in short, it means that not just that the cross happened on Pesach, on the day of the Pascha, but because in the Old Testament, that celebration was what, from the very first, pointed to the cross. And at the last, it was what God ordained to reveal the cross. A brief digression here. I recently received, uh, totally out of the blue, a letter from a friend of mine who is now uh, a rabbi at the University of Chicago and serves a student group there. And um, so I was, I was writing a letter in response and uh, I mentioned in this letter that, um, you know, at the Good Friday intercessions here at the monastery, um, we, we prayed for the Jewish people. And I included a quote from that, from that intercession. And I was about ready to seal the letter and send it off. <laughs> and I realized, oh my heavens, this is Passover. We're in the midst of Passover now. I, I, now, I, I don't keep track of the, of the Jewish calendar, but the beginning of Passover was Good Friday. And Passover has, uh, has overlapped with the Easter octave and it concluded yesterday. So obviously I couldn't write, couldn't write a letter to a rabbi without offering my, my, my Passover greetings. Um, so this, this festival, this celebration is what from the beginning of the, the Old Testament first pointed to the cross and what God then ordained would reveal it at the end. That is first and foremost why we speak of a Paschal mystery. Now, St. Paul and the whole apostolic church understood this, and uh, they expounded the cross as the true Pascha. 
In 1 Corinthians, uh, later in chapter 5, Paul says, Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. So Christ is the Passover. Christ is the Pesach. One more brief digression here. Some of you may, may know that I, I grew up in the Anglican tradition. I'm a convert. And um, among uh, evangelical Christians um, in recent years, there's been something of a fad, one might say, um, a sort of retrieval of the Jewish Jesus, but going far beyond that, obviously Christ was a Jew, and it's essential to understand him uh, in light of uh, the whole history and experience of the Jewish people, the law, um, of the history of, of uh, Second Temple Judaism. Um, but some uh, evangelicals had begun to celebrate Shabbat, uh, to keep the Sabbath, and also to celebrate uh, Passover and other Jewish feast days. I had a, a Catholic professor in college, this is before I entered the church, um, who said, Christians should not be celebrating Shabbat. We have our own Shabbat, which is Sunday, the Lord's Day. Christians should not be celebrating Passover. We have our own Passover. Uh, it's called Pascha, it's called Easter. Um, I don't doubt the good intentions behind many who do this, but Pascha is the Christian Passover. Uh, Christ is the fulfillment of Passover. Now, originally, Pesach was just one of the spring festivals which were to remain at the core of the pagan mysteries of the Greco-Roman world that I mentioned previously. And in this original celebration, it brought uh, into a, a kind of a joyful expression the reappearance on the surface of the earth of life uh, following the death of winter. So this is what the Pesach was originally. But then at a decisive moment in Israel's history, it took on a new meaning. Henceforward, it would no longer be a festival of creation connected with the powers of nature. It would become and remain the festival of redemption. And it was connected with a single event. It would be the memorial of the saving intervention through which God made something new in history. It was an event through which God took to himself a people separate from the nations that were lost in sin and death. So, I'm sure you know what I'm referring to here, and this is, of course, the Exodus. God visiting Egypt on the night when the Paschal meal was eaten by the Hebrews passed over, as we said, the Hebrew houses. And he spares those who were feasting in expectation of his salvation. Now, in the development of the Old Testament tradition and canon, it takes on another dimension as well. So it's not just the original spring festival, it's not just God's decisive intervention in history in which he passes over Israel and chastises Egypt, but it's also 
this idea that God passing through Egypt and over Israel has caused Israel together with himself to pass from Egypt to the promised land, so to pass through the Red Sea, to pass through the desert, through the Jordan, and then from the land of bondage to the land of freedom, from exile to home. And this was really a, a transformation in Israel's own self-understanding and its awareness of, of its status as God's adopted son. Now, to speak in the broadest possible terms about this, we can say that this Passover becomes a passage from darkness to light, from death to life. And it becomes redemption in really the fullest sense, which was the ransom paid for a slave which makes of him at last a man and then an adopted son. So Christ's death on the cross on the eve of Pascha, at the very time when the Paschal lamb was to be sacrificed, is now interpreted as the true Pascha. And all the figures and promises become a true and lasting reality. Through the mystery of the cross and through the mystery of baptism, Pascha also becomes the mystery by which we pass through darkness to the kingdom of light. Through the death of Christ, we are brought from death to life, from the death of this world to the resurrection of the world to come. So that is following Father Bouillet's analysis here, that is how mystery in the scriptures becomes the Paschal mystery and through the cross of Christ is ultimately revealed as the mystery of our own death and resurrection in Christ. So that concludes the first part of, uh, of my presentation and I hope provides somewhat of a segue to the second. So just to remind you now, the scriptures bear witness to the revelation of the mystery in history. And in the liturgy, we experience the mystery now. So I talked a bit about baptism there. What I'd like to examine next time in two weeks is the Paschal Vigil as the supreme expression of the Paschal mystery in the liturgy of the church. And I'd like to introduce this with another description. I talked a bit about, uh, about the, the Christian, the original Christian Pascha that was celebrated on the same day as Passover. Some of you may have heard about the controversy in the early church over the date of Easter. It appears that the, the original observance was this kind of Christian version of, of, of the Jewish Passover, observed on the 14th of Nisan, the month of Nisan. Now that was primarily in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. But the tradition in Rome and the tradition in Alexandria and some of the other important centers of the early church was to observe Pascha on a Sunday the Sunday that falls after the 14th of Nisan. 
A great dispute arose over this in the early church, and it may be difficult for us to understand why it was so significant, but it truly was. It truly was the most important controversy of the early centuries of the church. And this is because a calendar shapes a people. To the extent that we live by the church's distinctive calendar, which has developed over many centuries, we become more fully Catholic in our, our practice, in, in the spirit of our lives. That's one of the, the gifts and, and blessings that monasteries afford to the church and to the world, is that we really live sometimes totally uh, unaware of, of what's going on in the, in, the, in the civil calendar. In fact, sometimes we find ourselves thinking, what's it's a solemnity today. There shouldn't be mail delivery. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Um, so we're called as monks really to live that calendar fully. The dispute in the early church over the date of Easter reveals to us the importance of the calendar and the importance that particularly Rome and Alexandria attached to um, observing Sunday as the eighth day, the day of the resurrection. Um, this totally transformed the weekly cycle. You know, I spent some time in the Holy Land, as, as some of you know, and uh, Shabbat, you know, Saturday, is their Sunday. So everything is closed on Shabbat, and then Sunday is the first day of the work week. It's totally bizarre. I mean, it was very disorienting while I was there. And of course, to complicate matters, then there are also many Muslims in the Holy Land, and Friday is their holy day. So it's, it's, um, uh, it reveals in this kind of poignant way the centrality of the calendar to our experience of the faith. Ultimately, at the Council of Nicaea, the bishops gathered their mandated Sunday as the day on which the Christian Pascha would forever after be celebrated. But even in this early period, there was no such thing really as a liturgical calendar uh, of the sort that we know today. And really this term only comes into use in the, in the late 16th century. Now Christians in, in antiquity, they observed various festivals and fasts and so on, uh, but they didn't experience them as a, as a unity as a single entity in the way that we do. And so over time, these various festivals and fasts were, were gradually kind of knitted together in a way that's really beautiful and, and that, uh, uh, that edifies as you, as you really begin to examine how the seasons relate to one another. But the point I'm trying to make here is that one of the oldest annual cycles is this Pascha cycle. So once a year, this is sort of the center of the year. And there was a time of preparation before it and then a time of celebration after it. Now, in the course of the fourth and fifth centuries, uh, after uh, the persecutions uh, ended uh, and Christianity ultimately became the established religion of the, of the empire, there was uh, a development of the, of the festal cycle. But I just wanted to quote something for you here, and this leads to the final point. This development of, say, Holy Week with a Holy Thursday, a Good Friday, 
and a Holy Saturday in addition to the Paschal Vigil, which is the very earliest uh, feast, the feast. Um, although that did enrich the experience of Christians, it also resulted in a certain diminution of the sense of, of Easter, of Pascha, as the heart and center of the liturgical year and as a unitive celebration in which the totality of the Paschal mystery is celebrated. Not just the passion of Christ and the resurrection, but the incarnation, and through his passion and resurrection, then the glorification of Christ at the right hand of the Father and the sending of the Holy Spirit. So then Easter kind of becomes just one feast among others. you know. And in fact, much later, uh, it's kind of eclipsed by Christmas. Why do I mention all of this? Because uh, an oblate who attended and who, who read on uh, Holy Saturday at, uh, at our Paschal Vigil here at the monastery told me that this was the first time she'd ever been to the Easter Vigil. Uh, she's a cradle Catholic who's lived the faith all her life. And I began to reflect on that. I, I began to reflect on the fact that one of the central aims of the liturgical movement that began with the, the revival of monastic life in the 19th century, and then with uh, Pope uh, Pius X's Trale Solicitudine uh, in 1903, kind of gained official acceptance within the church. This emphasis, this, this insistence that the true Christian spirit is drawn from the liturgy and not from devotions. Devotions have to find their place in relation to the liturgy. And that Holy Week is the center of the Christian year. That sense had been obscured and lost uh, to some degree. Now, there are some kind of caricatures of, of uh, the life of the church before the council, and it's important not to give too much weight to the kind of polemics, unfortunately, that are very common today. But the point that I wanted to make, and this will be the, the segue into next, next month's conference, is I decided to do an interview of the members of the monastic community uh, the oldest of whom was born in 1948, and the youngest of whom was born in 1994. What was their experience, both in their early lives, of Holy Week and primarily the Paschal Vigil? And how did that change for the ones who were born earlier, uh, after the Council, or did it change? When did they first attend the Paschal Vigil? What memories do they have of it? And this was a fascinating uh, and very revealing exercise. And I would like to start talking about the Paschal mystery as it is celebrated in the liturgy next time by revealing to you the results of this uh, little interview that I conducted.